Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. The po- this podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Chief Diversity Officer here at the AAVMC. Now, Today's show is really personal to me, really, really personal. I started my own like natural hair journey. Well, I guess the second time around um, about, I don't know, 12 years ago or so. Um, And uh, yeah, it's it's been a journey. So we're going to be talking about hair today and not just just hair broadly, all willy nilly. We're really going to be talking mostly, though not exclusively, about black hair. Um, But if you have coily, kinky, curly, easily clumpy hair, (laughs) we're talking about you. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so did you know, as viewers and listeners, that in 32 states, I actually could be sent home for wearing my hair at the way that it grows out of my head, this kind of curly, kinky thing, because a lot of folks don't think it's professional. Now, of course, like my hair is currently blue (laughs) and the back and sides are shaved. So that's a whole different cover. That's a different podcast. But this part, (laughs) this little tuft of hair on the top of my head can can really be a problem for folks. Um, Only 18 states uh, provide legal protection for hair like mine or the hair that my guests have. Um, In the last 15 to 20 years or so, we've seen a really big resurgence of BIPOC folks with curly, kinky, coily hair, embracing the hair as it grows out of our head and styling it in more kind of traditional ways that, um, uh, you know, make us feel good about ourselves. And it really enhance and and, uh, celebrate the hair as it naturally grows out of our head. Um, But we still face discrimination because of that choice um, and how we also choose to wear it. So we're going to talk about that on today's show with my guests, Dr. Sharice Raw, Mr. Brian Satterwhite, and the wonderful... You all know all of these folks, Dr. Kimba Marshall. Hello to everybody. Hello, hello. Thanks for having us. Greetings. So as is our tradition on the show, I like our guests to self-introduce. So Sharice, we're going to start with you. All right. I'm Dr. Sharice Roth. I'm Chief Veterinary Officer of Fuzzy Pet Health, author of a couple of children's books that display the beauty of diversity and representation in STEM, particularly veterinary medicine and medicine in general. Um, I am out here at home on my farm in Oregon, so hopefully you guys won't hear any turkeys. Um, But uh, I'm also a mom of, of two biracial boys, one of which is dreadlocked and the other that is not. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Great. Thank you. Bryson, we're going to go to you next. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Bryson Satterwhite. I am a first year DVM student at Purdue University. Um, just being around, uh, being diversity, I started in the VETA program, which is a program at Purdue that sort of exposed you to the DVM curriculum. And so through that, I was uh, offered admission into the um, into the School of uh, Veterinary Medicine. And from that, I just kind of learned about uh, all the different things about what it means to be diverse, because growing up, I really went to like all Black institutions, majority of my life, and went to HBCUs as well. So um, just being around and um, being exposed to different cultures and different things sort of just uh, sort of enhanced what diversity really means to me and how helpful it can be, especially for, uh, for someone like me as well. So, Great. Welcome, welcome. And shout out to uh, Purdue and um, yeah, the, the VETA program and, and all of that good stuff. All right, Kimba. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, Kimba Marshall. I'm a practicing veterinarian. My pronouns are she, hers. I am uh, just outside of St. Louis, Missouri. I have had uh, roles in private practice, lab animal, um, corporate, retail, you name it. And now I am a CEO of me representing KLM DVM Consulting and am delighted to be with you all today. Snaps, 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 snaps. Congrats. Yay. 
All right. So let's get into our discussion. And Kimba, I'm going to actually start with you. Why don't you describe your hair and a little bit about your hair journey? Mm. Okay. So about five years ago, I knew that I wanted to do something different with my hair. Um, At that time, I was working on a large animal farm. And on that large animal farm, we are where the animals are. So if it's raining outside and the animals need care, we're standing outside. If there's snow on the ground and the animals need care, we're standing outside in the snow. And um, I really just started thinking about the amount of time Then I didn't realize this, but I thought that I spent a lot of time on my hair, driving to the salon, going here, going there, sitting in the salon. I mean, it literally is a process uh, that can take hours. And so I thought, you know what? I've never worn my hair as it grows out of my head. So let me let me see what this is like. I also felt like as I was thinking about the amount of chemicals that I would put on my hair to straighten it, I was concerned long-term that um, the health of my hair was potentially being compromised. Um, certainly as we get older, uh, you know, we we no longer say, oh, it's just hair, it'll grow back. You start thinking about, mm, but what if it doesn't because of something that I'm doing to myself? Yeah. Um, and so now uh, my hair um, is naturally just like this. I do a, a, a two-stranded twist. So I don't dry my hair per se, but I braid it, um, let it air dry, and then I undo those twists. And I think as we will all talk about, one of the things that's um, very interesting about natural hair is you as the individual have a plan for what you thought your hair was going to do. And if the humidity is a certain temperature, if the heat is a certain temperature, if you're wearing a hat, your hair has other ideas of what itself will do. So it's, as Lisa says, every day is a journey. And then the thing I will conclude with is, um, and this is something Dr. Greenhill has said, you know, where I worked um, on a farm, you know, if you're standing outside and your hair gets soaking wet, there is no, oh, let's just run around and then do a photo shoot one hour after this. If your hair gets soaking wet and you don't have any product with you that will let you get your hair back to the point where you want it to be, the only thing that you can do is um, put on the baseball cap because there's there's nothing else that's going to happen. So, Yes. <laughs> I tell people all the time, they're like, oh, like, is that a blowout? And I'm like... Oh, blowout is like step five. And then like there's like 10 other steps after that. So yeah, I'll talk about my own journey uh, after you all. Bryson, why don't we go next to you, Mr. Lockman? <laughs> yes, um, I started my locks about about two, two about three years ago uh, during COVID. Uh, we had got sent home in March. And so, you know, all the barbershops were closed and there was no way, you know, anybody could uh, you know, get their hair uh, fixed or whatever. But um, so I ended up just growing my hair out over the summer. And so I just kind of stuck with me. It wasn't my first time actually having locks. I had it in high school, uh, like my junior year. And so I was just familiar with the process and knew like the first three months were going to be, you know, like, um, I, I forgot the phase that they call it, but you know, the first three months, like your hair is just doing all sorts of things. And so luckily, you know, it was locked down. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't really worried about, you know, people seeing me or whatever, but, um, yeah, also I was able to grow my locks out and, you know, uh, I actually ended up loving them. I locked them up, I think in August of that year. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been, it's just been a journey ever since. Um, uh, and I do hear, hear, uh, hear what you said about um, growing your hair uh, when you get older, like it'll grow back. Uh, for me, I've noticed that like, you know, um, my hair hasn't, you know, I haven't had the same like hairline as I used to have when I was younger. And so, yeah. And that was another thing with the locks as well. Like I was able to, you know, like just wear my hair like it was and I didn't have to, you know, like sort of worry about that too much. because I know my hair is just going to cover it. So that's kind of like some of my journey, how I ended up just getting locks. So, yeah. Yeah. And even with that, as well, I'm sure Sheree will mention, like, you know, we also have the issue of, again, hairlines not being where they were. And, you know, the, the lock, the locks that start like back here, you know, and that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but it's, you know, but that is, Part of it is this is kind of how we're um, thinking about aging and thinking about our hair as a part of that process and 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 all of that. And, um, you know, the the, um, you know, addition of hair like the toupee, 
the <laughs> wigs, all of that stuff is great. It's great. That's your choice. Cool. But sometimes it's a challenge all to its own. So we'll get to that too. Cherise. Yeah. Um, I was actually thinking through, I, I believe I stopped relaxing my hair, straightening my hair when I first started in vet school. So that was 2009. And it was just still too much, right? I would come home and my hair would smell like the anatomy lab and I would have to wash it right then. All of those sorts of things were still there. Um, And so two years into veterinary school, I was like, okay, I remember the phone call to my mom. I was like, mom, I'm going to dreadlock my hair. And she was like, how do you expect to get a job as a doctor? (laughs) Um, and I was like, you know, like, I feel pretty good about it. Um, and so there are all of these pictures of me in, in my third and my fourth year of, of veterinary school with these teeny tiny baby dreadlocks. Um, and my only regret was not starting them sooner. Like mm. I've, I've been growing them for so long now that it really is this um, kind of beautiful component of, of who I am. And it's still like, I get, I wake up like this. I wake up like this. Um, and I'm just, what it did for me, honestly, just in that journey of, of babying them through the baby lock phases and the naughty phases and all of those sorts of things, I, I gained such an appreciation for what my hair is capable of and what my hair could make me feel like. And then I was challenged when I started like producing humans with my body, right? Because then once you start breastfeeding and all of those sorts of things, your hairline changes because you're giving up everything. And I was like, oh my God, like, what is this going to do to my dreadlocks? Um, And then seeing the power of them rebound. Mm. Um, And it really has been this odd, I would have never thought that I would have such an emotional attachment to my hair, but everything that I've gone through, I can see it in the shape of how my dreadlocks change. I can see, oh yeah, that was really thin because that's when I was breastfeeding Cooper and we were in the NICU together. And oh, that's when I gained a bunch of weight because I was breastfeeding and I thought I was going to have, a, you know, I was going to be able to get that weight off. And so my, my dreadlocks in were really full because I was on prenatal vitamins. I see that in my hair. Um, and it's just this beautiful story and reminder of resilience. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. That is so beautiful. Whew. So, but you mentioned something about what your mama said. <laughs> Let's yeah, go. I did. <laughs> Let's go there. So, you know, um, there's there's a reason why your mom asked that question, right? And and um, we can certainly look back at all. You can look back at pictures over history, particularly in the last like hundred years or so, where. Um, you know, the expectation was that we would, um, and folks like us with curly, kinky, coily hair would pursue beauty as defined by the European standard, right? And and it's kind of nearly impossible to do when you're not really a part of the European standard, right? But it forced a lot of us to think about relaxing our hair or um, or keeping it cut really, really short. And even then, like even with for Bryson, I'm guessing that there's still like this kind of um, narrow window of what, you know, black male hair presentation should be if you want to be considered professional. Right. So, Sharice, you know, what was. Tell us a little bit about kind of what was behind that that comment that your mom was like, are you sure about this? Because my mom also asked that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a thing, right? I mean, it, it's it's a way of my mom working to try to protect me, you know, and that that's really the reality of it. And that she had a very real understanding of the fact that I was going to be treated differently because my hair was different. And, you know, it's it's this, again, it's this aspect of, she was doing what moms do, right? You know, she, um, it is definitely something that she had to deal with. She never loved her natural hair. She didn't have the opportunity to. Um, and, and so I think that that was a big component of it. But also she knew that there is this appearance that if my hair is not perfectly straight and not wet, any of those sorts of things, that there was going to be an appearance of me suddenly not knowing how to do surgery or me suddenly not knowing medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we talked about it. And I said, you know, mom, I think that I have worked hard enough that I get to show up as who I am. And if that is not enough, then it is no longer, it is not the place for me. And that, um, that took a long time to get to, 
And I had to, you know, I had to have a really real conversation with her. Like, I cannot continue to code switch for my entire life. I can't. Um, And I've worked this hard. We've worked this hard. I've given up family appearances, all of these sorts of things so that we could be right here. Mm. And um, so my hair is going to look however it's going to look. <laughs> and she was like, okay, <laughs> you know, you know, because moms. Right. Um, but since then, you know, she has kind of, she's watched this journey happen and she's not relaxing her hair anymore. Um, you know, and so there's this, and neither of my sisters, I'm the oldest of five, all of us, but one is a boy. Um, all of us are girls except for one and they aren't relaxing their hair either anymore. And and so there's this, again, there's this aspect of you start to kind of break down some of these generational curses of you not being good enough and what comes out of your head, not being okay. And sometimes that has to be modeled and you have to be the bold one. And it's like, I'm going to have to be enough because this is who I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Bryson. So did you get any, I mean, you said that you had dreads when you were younger, so you cut them off. And then you started again. And we all know that like everybody, we went through hair stuff at the beginning of COVID. There were lots of bad haircuts. (laughs) (laughs) There were lots of no haircuts, bad eyebrows, the whole thing. Right. So so as you started growing them out and then here you are getting ready to start professional school. Did anybody have anything to say? Um, most of my family was pretty much supportive of it, um, except my grandmother. It took her some time to get warmed up to it, uh, you know, just because how things went with during her generation. But uh, my mom, she wears her natural hair and she has like a, a short haircut as well. So she was very supportive of it. Um, but I did have to, you know, put some things into perspective, like where I was going and like this is how society is now. Like you see a black man and I used to be a lot bigger in high school compared to what I am now. So like a big black man with who has locks and, you know, like people automatically assume the worst. So um, that's just some things I just had to take into account. But um, I find that like when I open my mouth or like when I just say certain things, like you really just have to get to know me. And that's kind of how I want to approach it as like, um, I just try to tell everybody, you know, like if you don't just assume about me, just come up and just talk to me. Like that's probably the best way for you to get to know me. Um, although I may, people say I may have like a mean face or I may just look a certain way, or I think that just comes from like how I look outside. But if you really get to know me, you'll know I'm like a very cool person. So um, yeah, I think most of most of society was like you probably shouldn't uh, get your hair like this. But especially if you want to enter the professional realm and like the term professional, but like what does professional even mean? You know, like um, I feel as though if I can do the job and I'm able to, you know, uh, articulate what I'm doing, if I'm able to do the surgery, if I'm able to, you know, help the, help the client and the patient, then what does it matter what my hair looks like as long as it's not interfering with my job? So that's just kind of how I look at it as. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, that grandma thing. It is a generational piece, right? So, um, yeah, I I remember my grandparents also were like, "You're gonna do what? What?" And I'll be, I'll be, I will give you a direct quote. What will the white people think? <laughs> you know. And the first time that I was faced with that question, I was like, "I don't know." Um, I remember showing up to work the very first time I went natural back in like the late nineties. And I remember, yes, I was working at AAVMC. That was like the very first time. And a wonderful, well-intentioned person said, you look so exotic. And I was like, not the reaction I was looking for. (laughs) I'm going to try to just in the moment, take that as a compliment because I'm sure it was somehow twisted, but exotic as compared to what norm are we talking about, right? And it's the unspoken norms that really kind of, you know, make this an icky issue. Kimba. Sorry, I almost fell off my chair, like (laughs) nodding, like, yeah. Um, So I think when we think about this, um, the first thing is, uh, number one, you're in work settings where rightly or wrongly, we are expected to answer questions that many people never have to answer. 
Mm. Anything from, um, you know, when the, the, when the phrase starts with, oh, you look so exotic, that sounds like, oh, you speak so well, right? Mm. And the thing is always in comparison to whom or in comparison to what, what? right? So, you know, when when people, and, and my hair, now I will say, um, one thing about working on a farm, there, there's not a lot of people and there's not a lot of extra hands. So if you don't want me there and I'm the only one that can do this procedure or that has this knowledge, I'm going to step back and be like, good luck with that. Cause I don't know how that's going to happen without me doing it. Right. So that'll cut down a lot of the back and forth. Cause at the end of the day, we have to get the work done. Um, right. The thing that I think is also very true is uh, farms are forgiving places, right? I mean, our, our normal workwear was t-shirts, muck boots, and jeans. And it is not lost on me that when I was in a corporate office, walking by my CEO, presenting to vendors, my hair was relaxed, right? Because it was in my mind, what I had to conform to for a certain professional status. Um, now, I think as I get older, and I love what Dr. Ross says, as I get more comfortable, um, it is also very apparent to me um, that my hair and the hair of individuals um, who are non-European is one of the most intimate, personal things about us that is on display for the full world at all times. When I'm on an airplane, when I'm in a grocery store, when I'm standing out in the field, I mean, it is, we are where we are, right? And so I think that on the one hand, we are uh, responsible at some point for having that conversation and having those dialogues. I also think we are responsible for setting forth certain norms. So number one, never, ever, ever touch someone's hair. Never, ever do that. It is offensive. It is inappropriate. It harkens back to a time where specifically for African-Americans, we were uh, in a position to be commerce, to be bought and to be sold. So if folks have conversations or have questions, that's one thing. But this immediate, oh, I love your hair. Can I touch it? No, because literally, as you all see me reflexly, like ball the fist, never, ever, ever do that. If someone is wearing a religious headdress, is never touch that. It is not something that you're open to. And then after that, you have to get past that and say, if this individual comes with a respectful question and is inviting dialogue, how can I push past my feelings, my emotions, historically what I carry in my body, in my hair, and say, we will have that dialogue? Because, I mean, to your point, if someone said, oh, I look so exotic, I don't know if that's inviting dialogue because I may not respond in an appropriate way because I feel like the question is inappropriate. Um, but if someone legitimately says, wow, how did you do that? Or is your hair naturally that curly? Or man, your hair looked completely different yesterday. Do you do your hair every day? There are ways to invite conversation and dialogue where there can be information and experiences shared, but that should only be if the individual that you are asking that information of feels comfortable. And I think that's the same thing. Literally, as I'm getting ready to go for a, uh, a class gathering with my high school classmates this weekend, on the phone with my best friend last night, and the first thing is, what's your hair looking like? <laughs> because even amongst ourselves, because we know the ups and downs, it's been raining, it's humid, like all of these things, these external macro factors um, are going to impact not only what my hair looks like by the hour, by the minute sometimes, um, but also what I feel about that and how I move in my hair and move in my body um, are, are things that are, are just, there's always in flux, you know? Sharice, go ahead. We actually couldn't hear the question because you were on mute. Ah, but <laughs> go ahead, please. Did you have something else you wanted to add? No, I just I loved that point of just the even just the kind of the flexibility aspects of of the hair and those sorts of things and being respectful of that. Like even when I relocated, 
my relationship with my dreadlocks changed when I went from Texas to New Mexico and now to Oregon because it needed other things. It needed moisture when I was living in the desert. And now it's like, oh, I better make sure it's like really, really dry so that it doesn't get crazy if it rains. And so it's, again, it's, this, it's just this theme of resiliency and how we are so much a part of just everything around us. It just, I love it. So I have a question. Um, have each of you had that experience of the hand coming to the head and making contact uninvited? Absolutely. Attempted. But that's when you pull out that matrix move. And that's when you, in the moment, correct the individual and say, what you're about to do is not appropriate. So I recommend you not do that. Bryson, has anybody reached out to touch your hair? No, I actually haven't had that experience. Um, anytime somebody, somebody usually asks first and I just say like, yes or no, but now I've just asked somebody just unwillingly come and touch my hair. So is the touching of hair a gendered thing? I don't know. I mean, folks do feel all kinds of entitled to, uh, you know, reach out and touch women. Just saying. That, that's folks fair. that identify I will as say- women, folks that present as women. I will say I've had people, um, you know, do the reach and all that. I've also had people ask and my, my natural response is, oh, sure. If I feel yours first and that, and that tends to, oh, well, that's like weird. Why would you want to touch my hair? And then I get to go. Exactly. Yes. Exactly that. Yes. I mean, this is, uh, sorry for the background noise. Uh, this is a very common situation for, um, folks of color. Trying to decide what to do as the podcast is going on. One moment, please. Well, we can talk amongst ourselves. I know. I was going to say, I am fascinated, Bryson, that your hair has not been touched without your permission. That is, was it like, okay, so, but you were, but you said you're like, you're a big black dude, right? And so maybe that's part of it. Maybe we just kind of seem female identifying as something that's safe to just reach out and touch like that's that yeah, is a whole like, nother level that i did not consider yeah like I, and like just in my experience i've seen it done more so to black women as compared to bob any i've rarely ever seen uh that question be asked to a black man um unless it was like a woman who may have like been interested in him like as far as like mm-hmm. relationship wise but that's that's probably the only time i've ever seen it so mm-hmm. And Bryson, when you describe yourself as bigger, do you mean taller or with in girth? In girth. I, I was okay. like, I was in the gym, like a lot more. Like oh, bigger. okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like we've kind of unlocked a whole nother part of this, where this is also a very gendered behavior of this kind of entitlement to, you know, Black women's bodies, frankly, <laughs> you know, and the hair. But I will, I'll tell the story. So um, I think I went natural the second time and for good, I guess, um, in around 2012. Um, I debuted my new hair after like cutting off the long parts. And like, so it was like, I don't know, maybe about an inch and a half long or so come into the office and everybody's like, oh my God, like, that's so cool. Look at your hair. It's so different. Because uh, I had long hair. Okay, cool. Um, a colleague comes in. And she comes in the front door of the office. She comes in and immediately, I don't mean, I just didn't even have time to do the Matrix Bruce Lee move. And she was like, oh my gosh, your hair is, and then the rub part, like the genie part, like, you know, and and I was like, oh my God. And we had a whole thing because she rode the bus to work and yay, public transit. But like, I was like, you have bus hands, like they are filthy and this is my scalp. (laughs) And so... And Sharice, to your point, she was like, oh, I'm so sorry, but, well, you can touch my hair. And I was like, I've known you for years. Have I ever expressed an interest in touching your hair? Like, does that uh, seem weird? Like, do co-workers just touch each other's hair? Like, it was really weird. So if you're listening or watching the show, just know, no touching unless invited, which is probably not going to happen. And (laughs) Like, don't be offended if you continue to reach as you're breaking this bad habit. Um, you know, don't don't be offended by the Matrix move. Like, no, <laughs> great. But I mean, it's really um, I do think that it is this kind of um, 
uh, now that that we've kind of touched on this the gendered aspect of it, that there is this kind of piece of who's entitled to whose bodies, right, and whose space. Um, and as specifically as Americans, typically we have a bigger personal space bubble than a lot of other countries where it's a lot that the bubble tends to be a lot smaller. So, you know, we have a bigger space bubble and then there's still this kind of like, I'm going to reach across the bubble and and touching. And it is a very weird phenomenon, sadly, that's shared and experienced by so many people of color, you know, whether it is hair or, you know, been abroad, folks don't see folks of color that often. And it's like, does it rub off? No, it, it doesn't. <laughs> And and people laugh, but but these are very real, sadly common experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say not not only are they common experiences, but you know, over and over, we we have to take the high road, right? Oftentimes we're in uh, an animal care setting where by our position, by our titles, we are leaders, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't just get to have the Kemba moment. I have to have the Dr. Marshall response, right? And so not only have you like looked at my my personal bubble zone and said, I'm going to, you know, get get in it, right? And then I have to think, you know, what's an appropriate response is it a teachable moment? And then when I'm at home, when I'm, I'm in a safe space, a safe setting, then I can have my, my human reaction. Because oftentimes, um, I think that we are put in positions where we are teaching an individual about an entire race, teaching an individual about an entire history, an entire culture. And so those things, um, you know, just, just are, are additive to our daily lived experience. Isn't so, it exhausting? Yeah. Are y'all yes. tired? Yes. Y'all tired? I'm tired. I mean, I was just thinking about that. And, and you know, and we said something else you had said as well of like, don't be offended by the matrix move and those sorts of things. And I'm like, you know, I, again, I'm to this point of like, you're right, Kimba. Like, I do have to be like, oh, okay, like you almost got Sharice right then. Instead, I'm going to give you Dr. Roth um, because it is exhausting. And after a long day of dealing with whatever life has thrown at me, whatever momming has thrown at me, on top of it, I have to continue to be this example, right? And this, this model of what is the appropriate way to react when somebody has touched you without your permission or said something that was inherently degrading, whether or not it was from a place of curiosity or not. Um, it's exhausting to have to teach people how to people. That's why I have children. Like, it's just exhausting. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely identify with that. That is, that is a hard part of so much of it, uh, just the exhaustion level of, of, of the teaching people how to people. Yeah. The chat is lit <laughs> on YouTube. The touching piece has brought out some commentary. My favorite comment is it's very much stranger danger. <laughs> and it is. It's very, I mean, getting back to, to Kimba's original comment that that this is a part of the body. This is it's a very intimate part. And and you know it is very much hair is is its personality, its race, its culture, it's a bunch of stuff. So, you know, it's a violation. Don't do it. But there's also this other piece, just another thing here. Don't touch my hair, LOL. Um, uh, I do think, here's um, Britt Bear. I do think it is gender-based, the whole hair touching thing, for someone to want to touch hair. Um, and to her point, I don't really have men going, I want to touch her hair, unless to Bryson's point, it is more of a flirtation kind of situation. But even then, that tends to be same race versus like not, <laughs> right? And so and those times that I've flirted with someone whose race was different than me, hair was not a part of the flirtation. It was not a part of that scenario, right? But um, this person also says, as a female melanin light individual with straight hair that loves fun colors, it is very uncomfortable to have strangers touch. So no touching. 
Or as my niece says, she's three, no touch, no touch, no touch, no touch. Right? So, you know, have you been concerned? Um, have you personally kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, we've talked a bit about that evolution of kind of self-acceptance of allowing our hair to grow out of its head the way that it literally grows out without chemical or heat manipulation, because um, that's how we achieve that for folks that don't know. Shout out to Maggie Walker, Richmond in the house, right? And for the, the yes, we put lie on our heads <laughs> to make it straight, right? Um, but were you ever concerned about that transition and how you would be seen and received based on how you chose to wear your hair? And, and that includes also color, you know, the color of the hair as I'm still blue. <laughs> Bryson, why don't we start with you? Um, yes and no. Um, it just, it really depends. Sometimes when I haven't had a retwist in a very long time, um, I can sort of start thinking like that, or especially if I have like something coming up and my hair is not like super like twisted down and you no know, things like that. I might sort of feel that way, but um, I, I had them in high school and like, I just knew who I was. Like I knew that like, I'm able to do a job if I really want to do it and I'm able to, I'm capable of doing it, then I know I'm going to do the job. Whether somebody is like, will hire me over that or not. I mean, I can't really, I just kind of told myself, I can't really like feel a way about it. I just, you know, um, I obviously if they didn't want to hire me in the beginning. Then I guess that job just wasn't meant for me. Honestly, mm -hmm. um, I want to go somewhere where like I just felt appreciated, you know, um, or somebody who just like just enjoy me for who I am and regardless of what my hair looks like. But uh, I definitely can't say that when I haven't had like a retwist or something's coming up and, and my hair is kind of looking a mess, even though that's just like how it looks like this is how it grows. It's not really, you know, anything different about it that's just kind of what really strikes me and makes me a little bit scared especially like by an interview coming up or something like that so yeah let's take a, just a moment to unpack this <laughs> that whole like it looks a mess even though that's just the way it is right and that's how deep this this indoctrination if you will goes where we're constantly like okay um, I might need a retwist or I need to, you know, like put some more um, um, uh, uh, of my defrizzing stuff on my hair during, you know, the spring when we rainy season and all of that. And during the summer when humid, it, right. It took me years, frankly, even though I was like, I'm sticking to this. But there was a part of me deep down. It was just like my hair doesn't look bad. Those bad hair days. Like, how am I, what is the baseline of bad, <laughs> right? And baseline of good. And so like, this is literally just the way my hair showed up today. And and I know that other folks, non-Black folks and folks without, you know, um, with straight straighter hair also have bad hair days, but do they really think about it at that gut level? Like, oh my goodness, I have a bad hair day. And that's also going to reflect on everybody <laughs> who shares race and culture with me. Like, I mean, we're just bringing all of this baggage with us. Um, and so Bryson, I applaud you and I applaud, I am feeling old now going into auntie status. I applaud young folks like you who don't seem to have as much of that baggage because I know that every now and again, I still uh, wrestle with the, like, this is a bad hair day. And I'm like, okay, but what do I mean by that? What do I mean by the bad hair day? Kimba, Sharice, any commentary on that uh, bad hair day thing? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to your point, images that we see on television, movies, Hollywood screens, uh, videos, commercials, images of beauty get cemented in our minds. And so earlier we were talking about in comparison to whom or in relation to what? Right. So when you've seen over and over the long, flowy, like, you know, the, the wind machine comes, um, it, some, some things may happen if it's windy outside with my hair. But the long, flowy where I'm going to like whoosh my hair out of my face is not one of those things that happens. Right. So, I mean, for me, um, one thing I would say is the the work that I continue to do is to push against 
those images that have been cemented in my mind about what is a finished look, what is a styled look. And I have to get to Kemba, you have hair. A lot of people don't have that. So you're winning no matter what. And second of all, to everyone's point, if something about my hair, my outfit, my glasses, my earrings, whatever, is enough to say that an individual chooses not to engage, or an individual says, I'm not going to hire you for that position, they're lost. And I say that and I know that, but that's continual work and continual reinforcement, especially because I, I see a difference in the way people respond to me when my hair is a certain way, right? I mean, everyone thinks that they're like going to just you know, cast a glance up at your hair. But when you start with my hair and then come down to my eyes, I see that, right? And so it's also knowing that um, not only in my mind, in my history, in my memory, are those in comparison to what in relation to whom images, but also the way that folks respond, depending on the way my hair is styled, is something that I continually work through. Um, because all of us, no matter what it is, right? All of us are like, how is my outfit? Is, you know, how are my nails doing? Are, should I get new glasses? Are these glasses clean? I mean, all of us, many of us go through that continual inventory, continual self-check. Um, and when you have others respond in a different way or when you have others, um, you know, I mean, the, the classic is, you know, oh, you, you go into the exam room, the person, you know, the client is speaking to you and then the client says, oh, well, should we wait for the doctor to get here? And you're like, yeah, let's let's wait for the doctor to get here. Right. Long pause. And then the client says, wait, are. Are you the doctor? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And then what that oftentimes is followed up with is I've never met an um, a. A, uh, a doctor. Have you never met a doctor before? Because I am one, you know? So, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that, that those types of pauses will indicate it's the tip of the iceberg oftentimes to a whole other set of questions, norms, assumptions um, that we have as a society. Yeah. Sharice, one way in. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. What's actually interesting is that this whole conversation, I've been thinking a lot about my, my son. Um, and and his relationship to his dreadlocks and my relationship to mine. And so when he was three, he decided, mom, I want my hair to be like yours. And I was like, oh, okay, we'll wait a little bit. Um, but he just kept asking and kept asking. And so finally I was like, okay, we're going to start your dreadlocks, buddy. And he loves his hair. He does not like, he's fine with me, like retwisting it, those sorts of things. Cause I do his hair, but he prefers it to not be tightly twisted, all of those sorts of things. And it's just not my personal preference. And so I, I question as to why. Um, is it that it's an appearance of it being a little bit neater, a little bit more predictable, a little bit more digestible? Um, I don't know. But I can tell you like the, the pride that I have when I see him get out of the pool and shake his dreads off and keep going, he does not care. <laughs> he does not care. And so it's just, it's a, a, a Bryson, I was thinking a lot about kind of what you said around that and like how that is not on Tristan's mind at all. And I'll ask him, Hey buddy, are you ready for a retwist? Cause I'm like, I'm ready for you to get a retwist. And he was like, no mom, I think it's fine. You know? And he, he just has this inherent love of however his hair is that day. He slept on the left side. He didn't wear a bonnet that night. He doesn't care. And, um, God, I just, I'm so envious of that. Mm -hmm. I definitely, I make sure that if I'm going somewhere nice and I'm going to go through and I'm going to twist, um, I'm going to braid them so that there's a style along with it. Like it's rare for me to just have my dreads in a ponytail um, or I'll put it up if I feel like it's something that I should be dressed up for, right? Um, that there, so there's that part of it still for me. And, you know, Kemba, I, I agree. There is still this ongoing narrative of, is this neat enough? Mm. Mm. And, um, and so like, I, I mean, I get my dreads retwisted every six weeks or so, unless I'm doing like a, a podcast for Lisa Greenhill and Campbell Marshall. Um, but, um, but truly like I do have that narrative and, and the girl in my head is already really mean to me anyway. Right. And so mm. I always have that question of, 
is this neat enough? Is this okay? Um, all of those sorts of things are still going through my head, but also we're here. Right. And I think it's such a beautiful thing to see like Bryson and thinking about my son, Tristan, of like, they are so early on in their paths and in their lives. And they're already, they're, unco- they're, you know, they are, they're going to lack confidence in other things, but this doesn't have to be one of them. And I think that mm-hmm. that is just so cool and so amazing to see. Yeah. Yes. Um, thank you. It's just, um, like, I, I, I definitely, I can understand that. Like, I like my hair when like, it's just like the new growth is there. Like the, the part when I just get a retwist and I have to wait like that three weeks for like to maintain it. And I also have to wear a do rag and I have to do all this. And just so my hair stays down that I don't mess it up. Cause I just spent all this money and you know, that kind of gets annoying after a while. I just want to wake up and just, you know, have my hair. It's just flowing. It's doing this thing. But the only thing I have to do is just put water in there, put some product and I can just walk out the door. Um, I think that's probably like the best thing just about having locks in general is that, you know, like you don't really have to do a lot really with them. Like you just have to throw water and throw a couple of things in there and just walk out. Um, but you know, like it's just, it's, I do think that like society does want like us to have, well, especially well, just for me in general, like have the, um, hair to be retwisted and have it to look a certain way. Um, uh, which is kind of why I have that feelings of like, yeah, maybe I should just get a retwist before I go to this conference or get a retwist before I go to this job interview. But, um, I don't know. I, I kind of just like my hair just like this, like just with the new growth and everything showing. So, um, it's kind of one of those things that you sort of have to balance with and sort of fight with. So, yeah. So what you all have really kind of also brought up is, um, thinking, I mean, I think that it's important for folks to understand the cognitive load here. Like, this is the stuff that's going on in the background sometimes as we, you know, Kim was like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this presentation. Da, da, da. Like, I knew I was going to be on camera today, but I was traveling yesterday. I didn't wash my hair. I haven't washed my hair in a week. Does it look okay? Should I do it again? What would that look like? I mean, I went through this whole kind of process until finally I was like, you know, like, no, it's fine. (laughs) It's really fine. And you'll get around to washing your hair. It looks fine. Right. But there is, even when you're very positive about it, there is still a short process um, um, that takes up this cognitive space when that I could be using for something else, anything else, kind of thinking about like, oh my goodness, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And, you know, I got to think about how I'm going to be presented. And as Sheree said earlier, am I going to show up as Lisa or am I going to show up as Dr. Greenhill? Right. And like, why can't I show up as Dr. Lisa Greenhill? Like, and this is, this is what you this is what you get. Like, this is who she is. This is, you know, but I think it's really important for folks to kind of think about that. So um, a couple of things from the uh, chat, um, uh, former Dean Stone, hi, um, when she was pregnant, people felt entitled to touch the belly. Very same thing. And it is making me kind of go think, thinking a little bit more about the gendered piece of this, right? Um, so yeah, there's like, yeah, women apparently are still kind of to some degree community property. And that's another podcast. We will get to <laughs> we will get to that, but I gotta I gotta put that on the list, right? Um, but you know, so many um and, and our uh person, yes, the mental gymnastics of it all is exhausting, a, a comment here. And then there are also um Sravia, our producer in the background, so many of the positive words regarding hair are inherently associated with straight hair, as in well sleek smooth, shiny, silky versus words like frizzy, right? And and even then that's a process. And my daughter is natural. She's got this amazing, like beautiful hair when she takes it out and wears it in the Afro. I am so jealous. And she's jealous of me. I have a looser curl pattern and I'm jealous of her because her hair stands up and mine doesn't stand up for several days. Like after I do it, it has to kind of get a little grit in there. Right. And so um, but when we look at like commercials for shampoo and conditioner, right, a lot of black hair doesn't shine. We have to buy products to get that. Right. Some of it is like black, black. Some of it is black, black, blackish blue. Some of it is blackish brown. But it doesn't necessarily have these um, 
the shiny reflectiveness that, you know, the commercials are like, that should be the goal, right? That should be the goal. And so, yes, the mental gymnastics of it is really, really um, exhausting. So I want to get back to, as we start wrapping up, um, the Crown Act, uh, which is kind of what I referred to at the top of the show, where um, 18 states have passed a Crown Act, um, and that provides legal protection for hair like ours, um, as well as other folks that also, again, have curly, kinky, coily hair um, or doing really cool things with their hair. There's art, all kinds of stuff, right? Um, and so, but we still don't have a federal Crown Act. Now, that piece of legislation has gone through <laughs> Congress after Congress, and it still hasn't been passed. Last year, um, the Senate failed to pass it, even though the House had passed it. So we still don't have that protection. And, you know, that I will be honest, I feel some kind of way about that. Thoughts, colleagues, Cherise. <laughs> so I, I'm of two minds about it, right? Um, because we we know that there are lots of laws and protections put into place, but who is the burden of proof on? Right. Um, and so I, I do think that it helps to have these sorts of things in writing. Um, you know, there are there are things that maybe one day somebody will slip up and say, I didn't hire her because she had dreadlocks. But the reality of it is, I believe that that is um, the burden of proof still falls on us. We still have to say, did I not get this job because of my hair? And then you have to go the next step of now, how do I prove it? Right. Mm. And so the protections only take us so far. Um, and I, I think that it's a it's a nice box to check as far as feeling accepted, feeling like I belong. Um, but in reality and practicality, I, I don't know that it would actually change what happens in those conversations behind the closed doors. Mm. That's the part for me that I think is the, the most important to address. And that's why we belong in those rooms behind those closed doors so that we can be a part of those discussions. Um, so more than anything, that, that's kind of where my mind goes with it. Should every state have this protection? Yes, absolutely. Should we not mess around state by state and just get this done federally? Yes, absolutely. And let's be in those conversations. Let's be at those leadership levels so that we're the ones making the decisions based on what that candidate can actually do. Um, how we expect them to perform, what changes we expect them to bring to the company, all of those sorts of the actual important things. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Kibba, any thoughts? So, you know, just kind of staying along that HR vein, <clears throat> when I think about, you know, the number of places that we've all gone to that are short-staffed, that are hiring part-time, that are hiring full-time, that are hiring for the day, hiring for the hour. Um, you know, my, my question would go back to um, people managers and leaders and say, are, are you really at this point in 2023 going to send someone home or not hire a very qualified candidate because of hair? Because if that is what you're saying, I will have the other employees take on more workload. I will destroy the morality and the culture of my business. I will put myself in potential jeopardy of violating a, a, a civil rights law and face prosecution. If you are willing to do all of those things, then clearly to me, your, your business does not matter to you, right? Because now when we look at the way that work as we knew it, pre-pandemic expectations, norms, what is a work site? Do I have to see you typing on the keyboard? If the pandemic taught us nothing else, the pandemic alone should have taught us, if someone is on time, dressed appropriately, and to Bryson's earlier point, your hair does not cause a safety issue, come on in. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Our industry alone is at a point where we, if we're serious about maintaining and sustaining our profession, we have got to get to what are the actual tasks, the duties associated with this job, this position, and who can I hire that continually brings value to my organization? Because we have too many patients, we have too many clients that need to be seen. Yes. Bryson, any any comments to add? 
Yes, I just want to say I agree with all of it. Um, I do have uh, just some words about how to sort of enact the act, because uh, to Dr. Ross point, um, how do you necessarily check, like, let's say um, that like, if you got discriminated against for your hair, like, how do you necessarily follow up with that, you know? Um, of course, like, and the employers can say anything, like, they can say they chose you based off of, like, or your credentials or whatever have you, but um, that's just be my main point. How did somebody go um, about like double checking that and making sure that like, was it discrimination or was it something else? Cause um, you know, anybody can say anything um, as far as like employees can say, like, even though it could have been based off your hair, it could have been based off something, uh, something uh, discriminatory. It could be because your credentials or whoever have you, and that's what they just say. So um, yeah, that's, that would just be sort of like my, my main point. Thank you. Thank you. And as we um, wrap up, I do want to just kind of, you know, <laughs> throw one last little bomb in here, right, that we didn't get around to talking about. And, you know, we're talking about this kind of issues around discrimination, around kind of how we think and feel and about presentation. But this stuff goes way deeper than this. And I think that people really need to understand this. So back in the days of Plum Island, um, you know, the, the research facility, where all the really, really nasty stuff was. And I'm sure that there's other research facilities with now on the mainland with really, really nasty stuff. But I wanna talk about an experience um, that I know students had with Plum Island. Um, students with braids and students with dreadlocks were not allowed to do rotations there. And the reason why is because I'm laughing because it's so absurd. It was like, well, bound hair, you have to wash in and wash out and like, and I was like, okay, but okay, but we wash our hair. <laughs> so what's the problem? <laughs> and it was like, but you know, it might be a biosecurity hazard. And I'm like, tell me more. <laughs> like, we do wash our hair, and yes, it is coily kinky, but I'm pretty sure the germs and stuff do wash out. Otherwise, we'd all be dead. Right. <laughs> like it, it washes out. It washes out. And it was like, well. Yeah, we just don't have the research that it really does. And I'm like, then I'm going to need you to do that. Right. And so these students who were really, really, really interested in research, critical research to protect, you know, all of us, um, to protect the homeland, to protect the world, the globe, all of these things, right, um, were not allowed in because people literally thought that these super bugs would not wash out of our hair. Like, and so I think that people need to understand just how deeply rooted it is. It's not just whether or not it's a presentation issue, but that like, it is a literal biosecurity hazard. Like, I mean, we literally have people thinking that our hair can be a biohazard, right? And so it's it's just that deep. And so I think that these conversations are really important. Um, so I'm really glad. Thank you all for being a part of this conversation. So that is, you know, the bomb that I'm throwing at the very last minute, if anybody has anything they want to say about that. Yeah, I think it just adds to the story, right? I mean, these are things that we know, we've heard, we have experienced that if our hair is not shiny, slick, smooth, that it equates to something less than, it equates to being dirty, it equates to all of these negative aspects. And uh, it's the same with brown skin, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it, it's the same um, in that there is just this lack of education. And if research funding and those sorts of things don't prioritize it, then they stay as these half truths, right? Um, and so, you know, there's that aspect of it. And so I'm not, I'm not surprised, unfortunately, but it is definitely one of these aspects that it rings through all of this, you know, it, and, and so it is, um, yeah, that could have been the person, the person yeah. with the dreadlocks could have been the one to solve Ebola, you know, we could have been the one to, to do so many of these things and we're held out because of half truths. Right. Um, and misconceptions and flat out racism. Those those students could have prevented the pandemic, but we will never know. Kemba? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking about, you know, the scientists behind messenger RNA that went into that COVID-19 um, vaccine. You know, when when we as scientists prevent others from contributing to the work and the body and the advancement of science, shame on us. 
Because when you look at folks who are in the news and easily found on the Google, who are behind those prominent COVID-19 vaccines, those same folks you would dare to say to me, can't do research at Plum Island? Okay. All right. And, and that is where, that is why we are where we are today. Yeah, that. And just one more thing. Like, I remember in those conversations, somebody actually brought up some research about fur. And I was like, I'm gonna let me stop you right there. We're not going there. We're not, not on my watch, says Ayan. <laughs> not on my watch. So yeah, this is, this is, this is really important stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sharice, Bryson, Kemba, for being a part of this conversation. It's been one of our more unique shows. If you're really interested um, in hearing more about just the construct of professionalism, please be sure to go back in your podcast app and look up episode 104, where I um, discuss with Amanda Banks, um, is professionalism as a construct inclusive? Short answer, no. It's, it's, it's not. Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's it's not. Um, um, it really is a way of controlling behavior and presentation, right? So um, thank you. Thank you again. It's been a really great conversation. Thank you for our folks that have watched live. The chat has been all that. One last comment, gatekeeping at its worst. Yes, this is, this is about also gatekeeping. So thanks right. for that. Um, really, really appreciate uh, everyone's participation and engagement today. This has been another episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To my guests, Kimba, Sharice, and Bryson, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and be sure to tune into our next show. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.